Uh, hello, everyone, and welcome to this EG special webinar where we are looking at collaboration, not conflict, and how to make green leases work. Uh, joining me for this discussion over the next 30 to 40 minutes are three experts from across the real estate industry. I'm going to ask each of them to introduce themselves uh, in just a moment and give us their view about why uh, they are here today to talk about whether green leases can, should and could work. Uh, Melanie, over to you first. Thank you. Uh, hi, everybody. Um, I'm Melanie Williams. I'm a partner at DWF Law LLP. Um, we are actually an LLP that's owned by a PLC, having undergone an IPO uh, in recent years, which makes us one of the largest legal listed bill, uh, businesses in the world. Um, that gives us an interesting take, actually, from the from the legal sector on ESG across all of its different uh, issues because we are accountable to our shareholders, much like many of our clients, and we are reporting on ESG uh, and our performance. And we're also morally interested in it for the benefit of our people, um, our clients uh, and our customers. Um, in, in, in reality, though, I just spend my time as a development lawyer. That's what I do. That's what I've been trained to do. Um, that gives me an insight across a range of different uh, parts of the sector including government agencies, both local sector and uh, regeneration agencies, but also investment and funds that are involved in the development of office buildings um, and also hotel buildings, um, warehousing, etc. So I see all of the green leasing problems um, as we're, we're finding them both in terms of the legislation and statutory framework that we've got at the moment, um, various um, push forward to try and get us to a net zero situation, um, historically seeing, currently seeing, and what we can do to improve the situation um, from various different uh, angles, including banks, local authorities, public sector, but also funds and investors and, and people who aren't um, listed businesses trying to grapple with that. So it's quite an interesting um, uh, perspective um, from various different angles. Fantastic. So lots of different viewpoints to, to come from you, but Melanie, looking forward to that. Uh, handing over to Sophie, who's going to give us the estate, I'm not going to use the word landlord, but the estate and uh, property owner voice. <laughs> Thank you, Sam. So I'm Sophie. I'm Director of Sustainability at Canary Wharf Group. It's fair to say that sustainability isn't something that's been ingrained with this business just because the subject has exploded over the last few years, but it has been built in for a long time now. We've delivered over 20 million square foot of certified sustainable space, but really we know that there's more to be done to take this agenda forwards. In terms of why I'm here today, I think you know, and I'm excited for this conversation. I think we know that there's more work to be done on green leases, but I think that they will be a vital tool to help us move this agenda forwards. Thank Fantastic. Thank you, Sophie. Kayla, over to you. Thanks, Sam. Uh, my name is Kayla Fenn-Smith, and I am now the managing director of, the, of our ESG consultancy business at CBRE and um, responsible for sustainability services that we drive across all of our services in CBRE. And what's um, really interesting about this um, group on this call is we're all actually joined together slightly historically, but my background has been on the developer development and leasing side. So I prior to CBRE, I was 
um, at Land Securities for about seven years. We developed alongside Canary, in partnership with Canary Wharf, 20 Fenchurch Street. And the two of us put DWF into the building. So there you go. And um, again, with sustainable credentials, and they're continuing to be sustainable. So we actually do the property management for 20 Fen with a big um, sustainability agenda there as well. So interesting how we're tied together. But um, I am really excited to be here today, obviously, given my history and the millions of square feet um, that I've been uh, that I've contributed to in London and just really where we need to take the green leasing clauses to now, how fundamental they are for us getting to a net zero economy and decarbonizing the built environment. And actually, you know, where we may have had in many years gone by sort of acrimonious relationships between landlord and tenant, um, the world is really moving on to um, customer service relationships, um, very much more engagement between investors and their customers or their occupiers. And um, it's really, I think, important that we start to talk about green leasing as or the green lease clauses within a lease around um, collaboration and how we find win-win for both parties and how we come together to collect the data and then start really implementing reductions and interventions together and providing transparency to both parties so we can get to the right result as quickly as possible. Fantastic. Thank you, Kayla. And how brilliant that um, there's a there's a history here among this group. I love that. You, um, we really should have done this in the Sky Garden, shouldn't we? <laughs> next time, let's do do it there. Let's let's start from the beginning. And just for any um, listeners, viewers who might be thinking, I'm not really sure what a green lease is. Is there a a easy definition? And Melanie, I'm going to come to you on this of, of what we mean by a green lease. I, I think some people might might say there is, but I think that's oversimplifying it. Um, it can be anything really, right from the basic, you know, putting some provisions in about improving EPC or complying with BRIAM or whatever else if in, in the relation to alterations, right down to the really quite, um, you know, B BBP, you've got a really good model. Um, if you look at their model, then that's, the, you know, that can take it to right to the nth degree. And, and actually, that can be quite frightening for tenants because they might go, I don't really understand that or I can't really commit to that. So, um, it can start really at a basic level and then get quite complicated. I think most leases we'll find are either absent at the moment or have a really sort of basic level of provision um, or a level of provision that actually is not, is just voluntary. Um, which is a whole debate in itself: how much should be voluntary, how much should be compulsory. So I think really we we're on a we're on an evolution trail at the moment with it. Um, I think we're still we're we're, um, we're we're in our sort of adolescent years, I would say, with the whole thing a bit spotty, a bit juvenile, um, and there's a lot of work to be done um, to get it to where it needs to be in in the next five to ten years. Um, but yeah, I, mean, I would say it's a broad it's a broad church at the moment. Okay, and is that part of the the problem in that when we talk about green leases and we um you know they are being talked talked about a, a lot I guess take up is is probably uh, less than the noise there is around green green leases is part of the problem because they can be you know uh, as smaller smaller clauses you know you must um um you know sort of have a building with an EPC rating of a certain 
level, which is coming in legislation any anyway, to that nth degree that you talked about? Is that is that part of the problem? Sophie. Yeah, I think I think that is part of the problem. And I think actually we've seen this real kind of material shift to a place where actually there are parties who are now interested in green leases. But the challenge is the how it's what does it really mean? What's the impact to the organisation? And I think that's a bit that if we want to move this agenda forwards, we really need to get into the detail of explaining why it's there and actually having a collaborative approach to ensuring both parties are supported in the impact of the business, the tools that are needed to do it. I think if we really think about it, a green lease could potentially be just a piece of paper. And actually it's what happens after that's really important. And that's where that upfront collaboration with what that green lease could be is really important. Uh, that that collaboration word, Kayla, you mentioned mentioned that in your your intro, and that being the sort of the gold dust, I suppose, that makes or green dust perhaps that makes uh, <laughs> makes this work. Yeah, I, I think it is, and I I think part of the problem right now is there's just confusion about well, what is it? What does it mean? You know, from an occupier or a, a, a business's point of view, they think, well, I don't know what the landlord's going to put through the service charge. I don't know what additional costs I'm going to incur, whether it's upgrades to get to an EPCB or whether it's um, whatever the, the the maintenance program is through the lease or, or again, interventions to get to net zero and energy reduction, et cetera, et cetera, in terms of in-use operational performance or embodied carbon requirements in terms of reporting and all kinds of things. There's, there's a big question mark around what is this going to cost me? And I think I think we're looking at historical norms and historical relationships that typically reflect who's going to be paying them. Like, where can I defer costs from myself and put it on the other party as much as possible? And I think there's been a lack of transparency and there has not really ever been a collaboration around clauses. And quite often, green clauses in the past have simply been put in a lease in, in the sort of standard draft that goes out from the landlord, let's say, or the investor, and it gets struck out or stricken out by, you know, the occupier, uh, the occupier's lawyer. And, and, and it's sort of who's going to push hard enough to keep it in or not keep it in? And is it really a deal breaker? And who's got the leverage in terms of is it a is it an occupier market or a landlord market? And, and how hard can we push this? And so when you kind of look back to what's always been a negotiation around an AFL or a lease, et cetera, you know, you've got all these different factors. And I think we're, we need to move towards a collaborative mindset because, you know, there will be other financial factors and elements um, that a lot, so much of the lease goes to value. And, and all of those things can, you know, will continue to be negotiated and, and finding common ground, I suppose. But in this one particular area, you know, there's so much sharing of data. Data is only the first step in terms of that scope three, which is the biggest challenge for us all getting to net zero. And so we, we, you know, as somebody, you know, our business in terms of the ESG strategy work that we do with our, our investor clients um, and, and representing them in trying to capture that that data from um, the customers and the occupiers within those assets. You know, so often it's just, there's just a misunderstanding of how difficult it is to hand over the data or find the data or collect the data. Why won't data be shared? And as, as I say, data is a first step. 
And and that isn't actually solving the problem. That's just measuring what we've got or seeing what we've got to then move forward to solve the problem. And it's how we solve the problem together where we really need to be collaborative. So yes, we need to be collaborative on, on again, opening up and sharing data, but then how do we get to the right end solution together? And I think there's just a lack of awareness, it, whether you're an occupier or acquiring space in the market, what does it all mean? Are they getting the right advice? Are they asking the right questions? Do they really understand? And we're at the beginning stages, but it's really interesting, Melanie, because you made a comment, you know, oh, we need, we have so much to get it right over the next five to 10 years. But, it, you know, so many of us have 20, 30 net zero targets. Five to 10 years is too long. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and we've still got legislation with EPCB and MEES where it's, it's still in consultation. It's not even law yet. And we don't even know what we're wow. actually doing. So anyway, Melanie, you probably- There's your point. Well, I'll stop talking, but- well, that, you, that, is, that is exactly the point, you say, because what we're dealing with is an illiquid- asset class. So we've got a situation where lots of us have got 25, not me, or maybe I do, I don't know. <laughs> I wouldn't want to know. Um, but there's 25 year leases out there and you might be 10 years in and still have another 15 years to play. And 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 that in a sense is a problem because they're not fit for purpose. They don't work. And the whole agenda, the legislation, the various targets, COP26, everything is coming along and and derailing the terms of those leases. They just don't, it just doesn't work. The two frameworks don't fit together. And one of the answers can be, oh, well, you know, the market is changing. There are shorter leases. Um, they've got breaks. But in that respect, that also presents a problem because if you're taking a five-year or a 10-year lease as a tenant, you're not going to want to be paying for something that's not going to get a return on your energy savings or contribute to it if you've got a break in five years or 10 years. So, that, in a sense, has its problem. Um, and I, you know, I could be quite controversial here and I could actually say maybe, you know, we, we, we like to put things in boxes and maybe putting all of the green clauses and the requirements in respect to that into the box of a lease, a document that actually we transacted today and is meant to regulate the party's interests for the next 10, 15, 20, 25 years is not the right approach because the thing is changing so quickly and the MIS regulations are changing. And there's also the other, you know, the other um, voluntary scheme, uh, which is the neighbours, <laughs> which I always think is hilarious, the Australian neighbours um, scheme for offices. I mean, these things are coming in and they're great, but you can't legislate for them in a lease today. So actually, maybe the way forward is to be having your landlord building plan, which is a bit like a tenant's handbook plan, but for green sustainability. And the parties have to sign up to it and you can update it and you have a provision release just as the parties will you know, do whatever they need to do to comply with the plan as it's updated from time to time. And that's that's your forum, that's your place for all of the changes as things occur going forward. It's a code of conduct or a memorandum of understanding. And that's the way to move it forward rather than sticking into you know a, a fixed lease point um, that doesn't really work. And then on top of that, and I'll shut up in a minute, but on top of that, you then need to have a statutory framework that overrides some of these things in the leases that paralyze us. Um, and there's so many examples, aren't there? Dilapidations, alterations, the fact that tenants shouldn't do improvements. Should you really be requiring tenants to decorate if it's not sustainable? Because we all put in decoration provisions, don't we, every three years? But actually, is that the right thing? And are they using sustainable water-based paints? All that sort of stuff. And, you know, actually, the, 
legislation and statutory framework can override that stuff and say, actually, this is the way it has to be done, notwithstanding that you might have, you know, put something in at least 10 years ago. Um, and it's the same with the Landlord and Tenant Act on renewal. You know, you, you know, renewals have to be on the same terms as previous leases. Well, that's not going to work, is it, for, mm-hmm. for green clauses and MEs and statutory framework. So I think there's there's a tendency that we want to fix it really easily by sticking it in the lease now, but actually five years' time, it will be outdated again. We'll be in the same position. So interesting. You so I don't know what I was going to say, Samantha. What does what Sophie doing? You know, in her leases. Yeah, I think I think firstly, it's such an important thing to note and be honest about that sustainability is rapidly changing, and it will continue to do so. If anything, it's likely to accelerate, and actually, that that places a challenge on green leases because we're almost future looking. We're we're trying to predict the future of what will be around, and that's unusual. And I think we need to accept it's unusual and think about what are the possible other things that we can do to support. So, for example, here at Canary Wharf, we have uh, tenant forums and we tackle discussions and challenges like this. We're quite open. We share the reporting platforms and guidance and advice because actually we have to work with the various different parties to actually move this agenda forwards. I I really like this idea of... um fluidity I suppose in in the conversation and and which doesn't doesn't feel very real estate as it as it is is today but it's clearly where real estate needs to be if we are to transform with the way the the world is transforming. Kayla I'd be really interested to hear from you with you know with your old hat on as um um a a property owner and uh, and now you know in the sort of consultancy world whether you're seeing a desire for more fluidity and whether you whether you think that's that's the solution to to making maybe it's not green leases but green something work for 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 the industry i think i'm i wouldn't say we're seeing a desire for fluidity i mean in a in a typical lease transaction you you know as a an investor or developer you want to button everything down especially when it goes to value or costs and, you know, you've got five-year asset management plans, et cetera, et cetera, um, in terms of CapEx and whatnot. But um, so I think we're, we're moving into a place we've never been before. And I think, again, it, it comes down to mindset shift of, you know, and Sophie's complete, completely right that, you know, we we are trying to predict the future in an environment that's that's rapidly changing in the present. I mean, you know, we there is a real there there's a real there's a real sense of caution amongst all of that. I think I think the reality is very different to what's written on the paper. So written on the paper, you've got a situation where investors and funds and landlords, I mean, you know, you you've got a distinct division there where they have to report an account for what they're doing and they do want to do the right thing but equally to be able to maintain the value and I think you touched on this Kayla to maintain the value you still got that basic principle I mean you're at CBRE right so you know this you've got that basic principle that you need a clear rent that's your investment return so if you start adding in there all sorts of other costs that you're promising that you're going to expend and you don't know whether you're going to get it all back um there's a risk factor when that becomes valued. So actually you're valuing an instrument, aren't you? And what you actually then do in reality is quite different. You might look at it and you might get together with your tenant Sophie's examples and say, well, actually, guys, if we do this, this and this and you let us in to do it, notwithstanding what the lease is, hopefully most people are sensible enough to say, well, that works, doesn't it? Because we're going to get a 
we're going to get a saving. So let's, you know, let's use grey water. Let's do this. Let's do that. And so you have you have got a difference there. But I think you still have a very cautious approach on the lease drafting and on those green clauses um, across the board, really. And, you know, I see it from lots of different types of landlords, private and public sector. Um, and they are voluntary. A lot of that data is all voluntary. And yes, they, they will probably do it, but it's still all voluntary. Um, so I think that's 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 the scenario, which goes back to why I think, you know, you probably do need more of a tenant handbook, memorandum of association type approach, because, Sophie, I think you said it's about educating, isn't it? And and there is a problem that a lot of the tenants aren't necessarily listed businesses. They're not educated. So you're trying to explain something to them when they're about to sign a police and what they're most driven by is actually getting in and, and operating their business. Um, not on, you know, the costs necessarily. They just want to control the costs at day one, don't they? So there's a lot of education to be done. That's that's the problem. I, do you know, I think you've um, you've completely hit the nail on the head. I think that education is so important. And actually, that's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to step back. We're trying to simplify the information that we're putting in and then build. You referenced a handbook. That's exactly what we're trying to do. We're trying to build that backup information. I think a, a big point that we're very conscious of is that we have to respect where people are on this journey. You know, the size of an organisation, the type of the organisation, you know, that can have a real impact on actually how educated they are today or which areas they know about the other areas they might not know as much about. So we really try and put the other hat on. We try and think about it from their perspective. I think what we don't want to fall into a trap of is, OK, we have this target, therefore we're doing this. This isn't about that. The agenda, sustainability isn't about that. It's how can we work collaboratively to it make impose. sure that actually they're seeing the benefits that actually benefit them and us at the same time it's that real mutual kind of understanding and how are you how are you showcasing that to to occupiers and and I suppose to other property owners as well because the whole of the the sector sort of bought into doing the right thing don't we yeah, I think certainly that's an area we want to to do more of. Actually, I've been in at Canary Wharf now for four months and I'm certainly picking up lots of really interesting stories. And I'm like, right, we need to talk about this. We need to share this. You know, we are members of or signatories to a number of memberships such as the BBP, the Better Buildings Partnership, UK Green Building Council, the Climate Pledge. So we really are trying to work actively as parts of groups to share these stories and also try and highlight the challenges as, as well as the positives as we move through and learn about this because I think there is that nature and sustainability to always share the good but actually it's some of the challenges and some of the bits that are harder which are the ones we've actually learned the most from or can learn the most from moving forwards from. I know it's really I was going to say you know Sophie um, just on that point we did a survey of I think about I'm about how many people, 600 people, I think, all about ESG across the board. And we've actually just uh, produced a report really extracting the, the information in respect of the real estate sector. And two out of five, I find this quite scary, but two out of five of those respondents actually said they, they still felt that there was a negative commercial impact on them in adopting um, environmental changes. That to me is still quite a large, I know it's less than half, but two out of five is still quite a large, I mean, it's 40%, right? I've got my maths right. Still quite a yeah. large percentage, you know, that don't see it as an investment. So, you know, there is still loads of education to be done. 
I, I think there is. And I think we also, it again, comes back to that honesty of, you know, one of the things that I've heard a lot of sustainability professionals say is it will save you money. You know, and actually it's slightly, it's a bit of a, to me, it, it feels a bit challenging when people, because I'm like, actually, we, we have to accept the reality of sometimes we have to invest now to save later or we have to invest now to support the reputation of a company, which may help support later. So, you know, I can see why why they have those challenges. But, you know, exactly as you say, Melanie, it's that education to move forwards to try and kind of remove some of those parameters and perhaps the periods in time at which they're taking that decision from or that approach from. And that, again, comes back to that collaborative piece, doesn't it? Because if you're honest about, yes, you might have to invest to make that, that saving. You might have to agree to this term, um, which might, it impacts you in a way that you don't want it to impact you initially, but here's where here's where we get to that that honesty is perhaps what we need a bit more of. Kayla, no, I I think thanks, Sam. I I, I think you're you're right, Sophie. It it's not all always about saving money. It, it this is very much about investing, and you know I think we need to take a broader view on on business and. In, in the sense that we have to invest today and, and quite often I think in, in where the investors are sitting is they're having to invest early because they're not actually able to um, correlate a direct return on expenditure that will get them to the right place that creates the right product for the future and will ultimately make them, I believe, more money in the future because they'll um, not be in, they won't be in risk of a of a stranded asset. They'll be able, they'll be in a better leasing position because they'll be they'll have developed the right kit. And yet, to justify it in pounds and pence, additional building costs today, it's not coming through. We're not seeing kind of strategic aims of of corporate occupiers coming through at the coalface quite yet to actually know exactly what the premium is on rents for the right building. So. I think investors and developers are really having to make the right long-term choices and they're not able to plug in the additional revenue to their their underlying appraisals or to the to the underwriting of their appraisals in the way that they might have typically done. So there's definitely, you know, investment today in doing the right thing for tomorrow, but I think it will absolutely put investors in the right place in terms of um asset value and income um value increasing because it has to because the financial risk to a business full stop whatever you do is actually not understanding the impacts of you know disclosures reporting everybody's path to net zero etc so um you know i think i think we all have to invest and we all have to invest and it's it's a terrible thing to say but it's 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 slightly factual is we we're all having to invest into something that's slightly unknown in terms of we're not 100% certain of what the outcome will be and i think trying to read the market engage the market in typical supply and demand or valuation criteria is very difficult at the moment because you've got these kind of two things operating in a parallel, you know, they're not quite converging yet in terms of um, how it all comes together around pricing and 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 values, but it will. And um, sorry, I feel like I'm slightly waffling on now, but um, there's an element of being a good citizen, whether it's, you know, a business and, and all the all the disclosure and, and the elements that we need to be investing in our businesses as as businesses and occupiers. And then clearly investors and developers as well. I think therein lies the rub, really. 
because it's about incentive, isn't it? And uh, real estate industry by its very nature is reactive, isn't it, rather than proactive. And we're trying to we're trying to turn it and say, stop being proactive, stop being reactive. And and it and I think you know you can layer this up. You know you got the moral, haven't you? And the fact that you know you got next generation coming, um, who this is going to be really important to. They're not going to go and work in a building that's they don't feel is green. You know, in it, these twenty somethings, they're just not going to do it. They're going to go for the businesses or work for the businesses, and they're going to look at what the premises look like. And on top of that, you know, we've got changed method of working where, you know, I guess two, three people, two, two, three days a week, people are going to come into the office. So that gives you a whole different new generation of leasing in a way, more flexible leasing with offices, the way student leasing works, the way hotel um, management agreements have worked. Well, actually, they're not traditional leases anymore. So there is there is there is more ability to be more flexible around green lease clauses. Um, it's interesting to see whether the rest of the market follows suit into retail with the way retail is. So there's a whole shift, isn't there, in generation, the way people are going to transact, I think, which will help us. Um, but in terms of that investment piece and that incentivizing piece, I think on top of all of that, you need the carrot and the stick. So, you know, that whole the green finance deal um, that didn't really take off or get implemented, that really, to my mind, is a crying shame because, that whole reactive versus proactive, the way you make people react is in their pockets. Unfortunately, it's just human nature. So actually, if you've got some tax incentives, capital allowance incentives that are enhanced for all of this, and you really strive for that using, you know, enterprise zones and allowances and business premises, renovation allowances, all that stuff, and BPRE doesn't even exist anymore, but you could do a huge amount with that sort of structure, couldn't you? Um, to incentivise uh, landlords and tenants to an extent to 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 adopt the right measures. And really, you you mentioned there, Melanie, that you know the next generation will only want to work in in buildings that are that are sustainable, um, which is is great if we were just building new buildings. But as you know, whenever we talk about um, sustainability we you know the elephant in the room is all of the existing buildings that we have and I wonder you know how how does a green leaf a green agreement of of, of some sort work in in those buildings that have such a long way to go those that might you know be stranded very very soon how do we make how do we bring both occupier and landlord you know up to speed in those kind of buildings I mean, Sam, I think that that is the biggest challenge. And I guess where, you know, and, and it, you know, to, to Melanie's point earlier, you know, the our biggest challenge, the easiest thing to to do is is negotiate a brand new green lease or a new lease, a new agreement in a new development um, that's being developed for the future. And we're, we're looking forward. It's all the existing stock and those those businesses that are mid lease and um, even have lease expiries that go beyond 2030 if we're just looking at Mies. Um, and, and what interventions need to happen while you're mid-lease and building changes need to you know, be incurred, some very disruptive, some will be very expensive to get to a lawful place, which we anticipate will need to be the lawful place of Mies and, and EPCB by 2030, for example. It's it's incredibly difficult, and that and that's sort of the the element that I'm talking about around, you know, how do we open up and collaborate and actually, you know, start to share the cost. At the moment, 
you know, our interpretation of Mies is that the, the burden is sitting with the investor, with, with the landlord. Um, but then on FRI leases, it starts to be quite a different thing and, and it's it's not quite decided yet and, and still uncertain. Um, so again, you're you're trying to to do something that that's that's uncertain in terms of what the regulation actually means. But it's it's our built stock and that path to net zero and those interventions that need to happen. So aside from EPC, that's totally different to actually where we need to get to on and on getting us all to net zero, right? Those are a moment in time measure. And let's not talk about whether that's the right thing to be doing or not, but it will be law and it will be what investors need to respond to. Um, but what we're really talking about is getting to a net zero place and decarbonizing and um, and, and reducing energy reduction and bringing renewables into assets and power purchase agreements into renewable energy. And, you know, several landlords have green energy already, and, and but but many, many, many don't. And it's all of those things that need to happen. Um, so, I mean, Sophie, how are you looking at existing leases on your, your estate at the moment and, and the changes that need to occur, especially on those big towers? Yeah, well, the, you know, for all of our existing buildings, they are listed within our net zero carbon pathway. So internally, and obviously you referenced perfectly some of the challenges with MEES, you know, this is all part of that. If a building is going into refurbishment, we would do it with energy performance in mind and the environmental outputs of that building. And actually, we're seeing that that's something that a, because of the developments in technology over time, there's the ability to support and do it in that way. But also we're seeing that actually the customers, the, the tenants we're working with, it's actually high on their agenda as well. So it's kind of mutually beneficial. I think one of the challenges is that there are lots of different ways to improve the environmental performance of buildings. And there are lots of different things which impact that. For example, the carbon factor, the carbon content of various different ways to power a building, that might change. And that could have a huge impact on what you're going to do. And that's why we've had to take that approach of stepping back, identifying our buildings and having a year on year plan about how we're going to improve them and ensure that actually as technology develops and as we have more solutions in this field, we're actually implementing them into our existing as well as our new buildings. Which is, I suppose, and I, I don't want to, I don't want to take away from, from this, from, from you, Sophie, but that's probably easier for a Canary Wharf group to do than it is for a, you know, smaller private um, land, landlord. You have the capacity to, to be able to look at things and, and measure and have um, people working for Canary Wharf group like, like yourself. What about for, you know, the very, very many, um, or, you know, so much of the built, built environment is not owned by, by big, big um, property players. How do we, how do we bring them on on board and 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 ensure that they are are working towards the the same goal too. Yeah, I think we have to have real respect for that, actually, um, the level of resource they may have um, and how quickly the agenda develops there. And actually, that's why it's so important and why we're part of memberships such as BBP, the Better Buildings Partnership. And Melanie actually referenced earlier the Green Lease Toolkit that they have and the number of tools that, that they've released. And actually, we sit on working groups and actually 
individuals myself and the team we actually go in and we share information and we work with them to develop those materials and those tools so that actually we're sharing and we're helping support the information that's publicly available for organizations that may be at a different place on their journey with this that's brilliant can, can i can i just add i mean there are lots of group lots of um representatives around the industry um representing various parts of the, the the lease process and the development process in the BBP working groups, but um, I think it's important to share that you know they're they haven't yet published all of the findings and the work that they're doing, and what's actually published on their website at the moment predates the Paris Agreement, so it's really outdated what you see, and there are some great conversations happening, and I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure what they're sharing actually, but I think it's just important to note that, that there will be a, a large output of a big collaborative effort from the industry, but we're not that we're not yet there. So so just everyone who's listening, please be aware of that. Well, there's a really um just try to look for the statistic. There was a really interesting statistic coming out of uh, Paris. That was um in, so when we did the when we had the um COP uh, with Italy nearly two years ago. Did you know? I don't know whether you know this. You probably do. Only 30% of the world was covered by net zero targets, but the figure is now around 90%. So I think that's just amazing. I, I think well, it's amazing, but I, I completely agree with that reference to there's lots more to share because actually there are so many different definitions. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges with sustainability is that you're often not comparing like for like in an approach. And actually, as somebody who might not be a specialist, it's really difficult to understand that from base value. And I think that 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 is a really important point that actually we have to move towards more uniformity in how we not only understand these terms, but how we benchmark and measure against them as we move forwards. Because exactly as you say, there's a lot of development in this space and it's very difficult to really understand where people actually are. It's great. I mean, I think it's a great move forward. We've come a long way in two years. I think um, if all, all the governments are, are, are stating that, that they're going to do this, and I mean, there is legislation in place, don't forget. I mean, our government um, did put in place legislation. Uh, what was it? The Climate Change I mean, it's Frightening, isn't it? Act 2008. Um, but that gives ministers powers to use new measures um, to, to help with reduction targets. So if all governments are doing that and pushing forward, then actually it goes back to that whole incentive incentive piece that actually they need to deliver that because that's the legislation they put in place. Those are the promises they're making, which means they have to produce and make available for those smaller landlords that we touched on, grants and tax benefits and capital allowance benefits and other benefits in the market that enable funding and investment to come into those buildings that aren't going to achieve those me standards. Um, because, you know, you can't, I mean, part of the whole carbon reduction is you can't just take a building that's got an EPC of F and say, oh, it's an EPC of F, we better knock it down because then you release a load of carbon. So, you know, the whole refurbishment market has really got to get going with the benefit of some of that grant, some of that um, capital allowance incentive. I, I think I think there's there's all of that, Melanie, but I also think that's that's a very hopeful, um, you know, positive spin on where we're at. And um, even the net zero, you know, the net zero commitments that have gone from 30 percent to 90 percent, you know, so many of them are corporate statements without any plan of action of how they're going to get there. 
And we're working with so many groups who have exactly that, a statement and no plan of action on to how, as to how to get there. And I think that, you know, we even have a construction industry that is so challenged and construction costs are what are probably the biggest challenge for many of our investors and developers at the moment. And, and yet we've got an undersupply of, of, um, of trades and people that can actually deliver on what everybody's net zero commitments should be from 2030 and beyond. So we, you know, and whatever the government's doing and, and targets they've set, and that certainly moves people to action, we need to be able to actually respond in the timeframes and deliver against what needs to be done. But, you know, we're not we're not there yet. We're a long way from being there and and getting to a place of 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 reality. So, um, you know, and that that's training, your, that training that you mentioned. I mean, that's why. And Sophie and I were having a chat before, but that's why it's so exciting to, in in lots of ways, you know, the next generation deplore, you know, their parents' generation, grandparents' generation for wrecking the world and. You know, it's all very doom and gloom, but actually it's massively exciting because it's like an industrial revolution for them. The whole whole market and area of training and in sustainability and techniques and data and IT, it's a completely different direction. It's quite I think it's quite exciting. But that's me. I am glass half full. <laughs> I think, you know what, I think it's a balance between the two that's so, so important because I think actually we have to recognise what we don't know and where we need to focus our efforts because absolutely everybody needs to prioritise every single day. But equally, it is really phenomenal, especially working in sustainability, recognising the difference now in where the world is with this. We actually have people asking for this, wanting it now. You know, when we're looking at green leases before it was a challenge potentially in the past to even have them in the first place. Now it's how do we get them right? And that is actually a big step forward. So it's it's that balance between actually knowing we've still got a way to go, but actually the industry has really moved on in this space and we see a completely different level of buy-in today, driven by, you know, it was referenced earlier, historically it was very much it's the right thing to do, but now it's the right thing to do, as well as the reputational risk of doing it, and or not doing it more specifically, and also the legislation behind it as well. So, you know, it's, uh, it's a bad thing. Right critically, direction. it's the only thing to do, because if we don't do <laughs> yeah. it, we're all going to be living underground. I mean, I think in the Middle East, isn't there a whole plan to have an underground? I mean, we're all going to be like that, aren't we? So if we don't do something, we don't really have much alternative. <laughs> it's the reality. <laughs> So I, we we have about a couple of minutes left um, and I'm going to try and stick with the, unlike me, I'm going to try and stick with the glass half full. And we talked about um, sharing and collaborating. So I'm going to ask each of you to round us up for today with one piece of information that you would share with listeners, viewers, the, the industry at large, that they, that can help them on this, on this journey to, I guess, turning that green lease, that green agreement, whatever we want to call it from principle to practice from intention to, to action. Kayla, I'll start with you. <laughs> well, I think that's really the important bit, isn't it? Because we need to be positive and, you know, we can't be doom and gloom because that just forces us all to a place of inertia. And we need to have enough positivity to know that change, the changes we can make can get us to the future and the world where, where we're all prospering and surviving, quite frankly. Um, but I think in terms of one thing is to kind of try and dis dispel the myth that if I get to a practical place, 
that sharing energy data um, as as occupiers and and opening up and sharing that data isn't as difficult or as challenging as one might think. And it's the place to start where we just start to disclose what we're dealing with in in a building, both from you know particularly the occupier spaces that aren't shared and under landlord control. And it's just to to really break down the myth and start to open up and tr try and contribute and get that mindset to that open and collaborative place. Fantastic. Thank you. Sophie? I think for me, it would be to think of a green lease as a tool, not an outcome. And what I mean by that is think about what you're going to do after to support the delivery of the green lease, to really think about the outcomes, how are we going to work collaboratively? I think that's the only way to make sure that actually green leases aren't a bit of paper. They're actually something that helps move the agenda forwards. Brilliant. Thank you. And final word, Melanie. Well, I mean, I think the, the main thing is to remember that the the whole point is that the landlord and tenant is a relationship. They're not they're not litigating against each other. They're in it together. Um, they've got you know they've got win tracked aims. Um, there are opportunities in all of this. Look for the opportunities. Be open minded. Be brave. Be a bit bold. Um, and where you're a bit lost, reach out for help. No one no one will um, no one will put you down for that at all. What a fantastic message to to finish on. Reach out for help, and um, the help is out there. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a fantastic conversation. I know we could go on, uh, but there will be more, uh, I'm sure, on, on upcoming EG podcasts. But for now, thank you for joining us, Melanie. So cool. Thank you.